0: Well, we're looking this evening at Isaiah 5. I only read the first seven verses, but I will be referring to the chapter as a whole. Almost certainly, this uh, chapter, Isaiah 5, uh, was the basis for several parables told by Jesus in the Gospels. Several parables to do with vineyards and with the vine. And I read one well-known section from John's Gospel concerning that. Isaiah is also here using a parable in these opening seven verses. It's a parable in that there is something allegorical about it, but it is also pointing to the truth, and the prophet uh, proceeds to unlock the meaning of the parable and to apply its teaching. It starts off as we read as a love song, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyards. The prophet is here taking what we might call an indirect approach to speak to Israel. It reminds us perhaps of the way in which the prophet Nathan approached King David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba uh, and how the prophet Nathan told that parable concerning the poor man with the little lamb baby lamb and how someone came in and stole that lamb and so on which the poor man loved so much and by that indirect approach the prophet was able as it were to get under the skin and into the conscience of David and it seems that this is the way in which uh, the prophet Isaiah is is speaking here he's speaking in an indirect way in order to lead the people of Israel to think about themselves more objectively in order that they will not immediately raise barriers and become defensive before he's even hardly opened his mouth. And that is why in verse 3, for example, he invites their verdict on what he has to say. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me... And and then he begins to apply it. So let us look at this passage firstly from the point of view that this illustrates Israel's disobedience. As we see from the opening verses of Isaiah, he prophesied during the reigns of several kings. And Isaiah 5 probably comes after the days of Uzziah and Jotham who were kings of Judah. And he's describing how it is in the kingdom at that time. And so we can see he is particularly uh, pointing out, as he has been in the previous chapters, the disobedience of Judah to the Lord. As it says in verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant Plan. Notice there he's not just limiting what he has to say to Judah, he's also at this point including the northern kingdom of Israel. As far as the vineyard is concerned, it's a picture of all of those who at this stage in Old Testament history are the people of God. Uh, but, as he makes the application, he looked for justice, but behold oppression. For righteousness, but behold a cry for help. And he has, in the remainder of this chapter, once more, a detailed um, breakdown of the sins that have been going on in both Israel and Judah. Israel, which is soon, by the way, to be deported by the Assyrians, and Judah, which some 140 years later will be deported by the Babylonians. Notice as he identifies their sins, and I'm sure we will find an echo in our own hearts concerning the sins in society around us, and indeed sins that so readily infiltrate our own hearts and lives. Notice in verse 8, for example, the greed Woe to those who join house to house, they add field to field, till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. There he's um, particularly picking on this acquisitive um, aspiration, which so many had to add more and more property and land to their own uh, properties, what they have in their lands. And this is against the background that this is the promised land, and each family has its portion given to it by God. In Numbers 33... And 54, we read about that as, <clears throat> as uh, Moses speaks to, or the Lord speaks to Moses, and he says, you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families. To the larger you shall give a larger inheritance, and to the smaller you shall give a smaller inheritance. There everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot, you shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. So each part, whether it's a tribe or whether it's a smaller family unit, they have been given this by God. And we can understand now why in 1 Kings 21, um, Naboth is so reluctant to sell his vineyard to Ahab and Jezebel. Remember that they tried to get him to sell up But he wouldn't do it, firstly, because they were idol worshippers. But secondly, because he says, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. There was a a God-fearing spirit in Naboth. And therefore, he was against their acquisitiveness. But you see, what the prophet is here identifying is this greed, this desire for evermore, this materialism. And then you can see how he speaks about the drunkenness, the intoxication in society. Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink who continue until night till wine inflames them. Verse 22, woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. You can just sense the irony these these wonderfully heroic people, their heroism is down in the pub and in the club. That's where their heroism is. And then we have in verse 12, the sense of hedonistic self-centered pleasure. Verse 12, the harp and the strings, the tambourine and flute and wine are in their feasts. Nothing wrong with music, but they do not regard the work of the Lord nor consider the operation of his hands. There's a forgetfulness of God. They're using culture to forget God. Even as in these days, people will use the very creation, the very uh, wonderful estates and gardens in order to get God out of their minds. And they do it on a Sunday, don't they? At least they did before the pandemic came along. And then verse 19, we See the mockery of God. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope that say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. This is not a genuine prayer. This is irony. This is mockery. Probably mockery of the language of the prophets. Who has said that God will hasten his work? God will do his work. We know in our day, as Peter says in his second letter, there are those scoffers who will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. It's not that everyone goes around quoting that verse, But the point is, in their attitude and in their actions, they are in effect underlining their mockery. Well, where is this God's? Everything is as it always has been for millions and billions of years. And then in verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, the turning upside down of definitions of right and wrong, turning the truth on its head, abusing even language itself to call moral darkness light, and moral light darkness. And we see this, do we not, in sexual identity politics. Uh, We've seen such, we've seen more of it than we would ever want to see, and yet we probably have to, Continue seeing it and hearing of it for a long time to come. Uh, and God says, woe to those who think like that and speak like that. Woe to them. And verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. This is a very frequent refrain in the scripture. Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 12 uh, says something Similar, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. To be wise in your own eyes. Everybody has their opinion. Everybody thinks they're right. Uh, Everyone knows how to run the country and what to do in this time of COVID pandemic. Everybody uh, could be Prime Minister or the Cabinet. Uh, Everyone knows what's right and... Uh, There's no humility, is there? And then verse 23, he speaks about the corruption, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. Ready to take bribes, ready to give bribes, ready to oppress. Now, there is a value in this kind of study tonight to identify sins, to identify The kinds of things going on in 700 BC and to say, yes, these are exactly the sins that we see in our society that we know is around us and that all too readily infiltrate and influence us. And once we were sunk in these very sins before God had mercy upon us, if you're a Christian. There's a value here, isn't there? It's all very well to say, be ye holy. But what does holiness mean? Well, it means I don't get drunk with wine, but I'm filled with the Spirit. It means I don't covet and lust after more and more money and property and houses and holidays and all the other things. It means I don't worship culture. It means I don't worship the idols of this world. And I don't, by my actions, make a mockery of what I've heard in church as though what I heard in church is totally irrelevant to what I do Monday to Saturday. It means I'm not wise in my own eyes. These things need to be said to us. They need to get right under our skin and into our bloodstream because this is what's going on all around us, even as it was going on in the days of Israel and its disobedience. And none of us can say we're free of these things. Because, as the scriptures say, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if anyone says he has no sin, they're a liar. Israel's disobedience. But then let's come once more to the first seven verses God's disappointment. God's disappointment. It starts as a, a love song. God is appealing. And is accommodating. He wants to lead the people to think about themselves. And so it starts that way. But by the time you get to verse 7. There is a searing denunciation. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice but behold oppression. For righteousness but behold a cry for help. It starts off about a vineyard. A very fruitful hill. It starts off in a very melodic kind of way and it ends with a clunk, doesn't it? It ends with a discord. There's nothing pleasant and love song about this. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry. And it's as though God is showing his disappointments, his distress in this clunking anticlimax. And that's intended. God will use any and every way to try and get into people's hearts and minds through his prophets. Sorry to use that expression, God trying, but you know what I mean? God uses these things because he is aiming at the hearts. And in this love song, which expresses God's disappointment, we learn about the vineyard, which as we've already seen, stands for the whole house of Israel, north and south, all the ancient people of God. It's sited in an ideal place. It's on the side of a hill where the sun will beat down upon it. It's a fruitful hill, so the soil is good. It's a protected vineyard because there's a hedge about it, probably a thorn hedge. There's also a wall. The stones have been dug up and cleared and Palestine even in the days of of, um, the Old Testament was known for its stones Um, and it may well be that those stones in the mind of the prophet are used to build that tower, that place where the vineyard is protected he built a tower in its midst verse 2 A tower where someone can watch out for those who would come and steal the grapes. The stones are cleared. The ground is protected. And he's expecting it to bring forth good grapes. He's planted with with good vines, choice vines. He's expecting luscious grapes. Choice grapes. And he's even ready for the grape juice because he's hewn out A wine press from the rock. He's even got that ready. And so, what's going to happen? It's a long wait. Apparently, it takes two years for a vine to produce fruit. But instead of big, luscious, red, delightful grapes, you've got apparently little, small, bitter, inedible grapes, wild grapes. And we see why this is a parable, because a parable is an earthly story with a spiritual meaning, a heavenly meaning. And this is a parable concerning Israel. She was so blessed. God did everything for her. She was delivered from Egypt. She was protected by God. She was brought into the promised land through Joshua. She was, of course, delivered from uh, the Egyptian army through the Exodus and the Red Sea, She was looked after by God. He watered Israel and he gave her fruit, her bread in her season. It was a land of milk and honey. He sent to her the law through his servant Moses and through the prophets. And it was all undeserved. It wasn't because she was greater than any other nation that he gave her these things. She was least of the nations. Deuteronomy chapter 8 tells us this. It was utterly undeserved, and yet what fruit will he get? Well, the answer we've already seen in the disobedience and covenant transgression that was rampant in Israel. Her disobedience was like wild figs. It rendered her worthless as a vineyard, fit only to be cast out. Maybe from a distance it looked as though her piety was the real thing, but actually it wasn't. It was a cloak for covetousness, for oppression, and for all kinds of hidden sins. And she is so guilty that God invites the inhabitants of Jerusalem as the chief place of the country and the men of Judah to pass judgment upon themselves. Because God is saying there's no fault in me. This is not my fault. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? It's not my fault. My dear friends, it's not God's fault. The sins and the wickedness in our hearts and in our nation. We cannot blame God for the kinds of sins that have already been identified and all the other sins. We cannot say this is God's fault. That because of the pandemic or some other issue, that therefore we had to sin. And God has brought us into this. It's, it's, it's our fault. And we are always in God's debt. What more could he ever do for us than give us life and breath? then give us food and clothing then give us his fresh air to breathe and his ground to walk upon what more do we deserve we don't even deserve that as creatures and as sinners there is something utterly unreasonable and indefensible that any one of us should commit even just one little sin it's utterly unreasonable it's utterly indefensible when God has lavished upon you his love and his care from your mother's womb onwards. When God looked after you as a toddler, when God looked after you as a teenager, when God looked after you in your twenties or in your mid middle ages or in, into your old age, God has cared for you, God has watched over you and you're still alive. And maybe you've heard the gospel many times. And it is utterly indefensible for any one of us to have any sin whatsoever in our hearts and in our lives. To bring forth wild grapes is dreadful. We were thinking this morning of Hebrews 6 and apostasy. There's a strong connection between this passage and that passage. One of God's providential leadings, I believe, of our ministry here, that we should be looking at something of the same theme in the two passages. I'm not saying this is exactly the same as Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6 is a more solemn, a more final case, but there are connections of thoughts. And so we have God's disappoint Israel's disobedience, God's disappointment, and then Israel's doom. Israel's doom which is sealed in fact in chapter 5 as you read it through there are six occasions when the word woe is used. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine and so on. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity. This is not just a kind of ah, alas and alack. He's saying woe. Is God's judgment. It's not just the prophet saying I'm sad. The prophet is saying there is something objective and real and dynamic coming to those who commit these sins and it's woe. It's not a word we use much. The New Testament has a more powerful word in letter to the Galatians. It's God's curse. Which again is not just an expression Of subjective dislike. It's it's a dynamic thing. Cursed is everyone who breaks the law. And here's the curse. That there are woes coming. What are these woes? In verse 5. We read of one. Now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. And it shall be burned. And break down its wall. And it shall be trampled down. How is it that. A nation such as Israel, which God particularly gave the promised land to by dispossessing the Canaanites, by bringing about sometimes supernatural victories, how is it that that people, those peoples north and south, could be swept away into Assyria and then into Babylon? How is that? Well, God tells us. He says, I'm going to break down this hedge, this protective hedge, I'm going to break down the wall that protects you. He predicts that he will do this in the Psalms. In Psalm 89, for example, in verse 39. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You have broken down all his hedges. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass by the way plunder him. He is a reproach to his neighbors it's the same metaphor it's the same idea it's you imagine it in your garden you've got a lovely orchard and there's a wall or a fence around your garden but one day the, the fence is destroyed and people just ramble through your garden pulling the apples and eating them as they go on their way and here come in all these nations and above all the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and they break down the strongholds they invade they enslave they deport they leave disaster and bereavement it hasn't just happened because that's the way of history it's happened because God has removed the hedge my dear friends what hedges has God been removing in our nation even within these last 20 or 30 years What protective walls around the morality and around the standards of decency in our nation has God been removing that we live in a day where a man can change to a woman and no one is supposed to bat an eyelid or vice versa? It's a woe. It's a curse. And it's God's curse. It's God who has dismantled these protective barriers. And God was doing it in the days of Isaiah. And God was fulfilling the very uh, promises that He made in the time of the establishment of the Old Covenant when He said through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 28 to those who disobeyed Him, and let me just pick one place, verse 23. The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever, with sword, with scorching, with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze. The earth which is under you shall be iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them and you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. That's what God is sending upon Israel. Now I'm not saying that Britain is Israel. I'm not saying even in in that situation, direct sense that the church is Israel. We've seen from our studies in Hebrews that the church the real church is radically different from Israel because the real church is regenerate it is born again, it cannot commit final apostasy but I'm also not saying there are not fundamental principles in this passage that we can apply to our day and our time There are great principles concerning sin and judgment and woe which we are living among perhaps more than we ever thought was possible. We are living amongst it. One of the strange things when you get to my age is this, you look back on times when the gospel was blessed in our country you knew of churches and to some small extent you experienced it within your own circle where there were many conversions. And the strange thing was when you were in that, this is, this is wrong of course, but you didn't think that was particularly special. You thought, well, this is how it always is. We shouldn't think like that, of course. We should be conscious of how blessed we are. But at the time it kind of is not realized the significance of the day and the blessedness of the day. I put it to you, friends, is it possible that we're living in such a time today that we're not fully conscious of the woe of today, the awfulness of today, of what God is doing and why he's doing it? Israel's doom. But I've also stressed Scripture's discontinuity let's just be careful Britain is not Israel the church is not directly Israel the church the olive tree of the church is a different more blessed community even than Israel we haven't time to really explore that one but let me finish with Christ's declaration Christ's declaration concerning his true church in John chapter 15. Here's a vineyard which does bring forth fruit. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. What is this fruit? Well, there has been a tendency, particularly under some fundamentalist Arminian teaching, to say that the fruit are those who profess faith. I do not believe that's New Testament teaching. The fruit is identified by the fact that Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. In other words, he burns it. Verse 6, he gathers and throws them into the fire and they are burned. That's Judas Iscariot. Ripped out of the vine, because he was never actually in the vine, and thrown into the fire. A son of perdition. What was the fruit that was lacking in his life? It wasn't converts, because he was going out with the other disciples, the 70 and so on, and experienced spiritual gifts, experienced miracles, saw much interest in the teaching. He had that kind of fruit, but the fruit he didn't have was the love of God in his hearts. He didn't have the fruit of the spirits. The very things that Isaiah is lamenting over the lack of in Israel and Judah in his day. The very things that he would long for. Self-control instead of intoxication. Honesty and purity instead of corruption. Decency. And integrity instead of the rottenness that was there in society. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the kind of fruit our great vine dresser is looking for. This is what he wants to see. And there is a love song that goes on between him and us. You can read it in the Song of Solomon I am my beloved's and he is mine. And he enjoys his fruit. As he goes into his garden and he eats his precious fruits. What are these fruits? They're the Christ-likeness that are to be found in each one of his disciples. Let us ask God to give us such fruit in our lives. Let us repent of the wickedness and disobedience and sin which so easily besets us. Let us cry to him if you've never done so to make you a true child of God, to give you a new heart, a new spirit. And let us pray that God will yet be merciful to our needy nation.